Was it? Oh, I, did I smile? What? What just happened? I don't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Toomey, and I am here live in the field at RailsConf in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Today I'm joined by Glenn Vandenberg. Glenn, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, glad to be here. So uh, we were lucky enough to catch you immediately after your talk. So I appreciate so much that you are uh, taking this moment and in the aftertime of the talk, all of the, you were just talking about the adrenaline uh, spikes and things like that. Yeah, so if I okay. sound a little lethargic, it's because <laughs> all my adrenaline is spent. Well, it's good. I've been doing almost nothing all day, so I can try and bring the energy and, and we'll, uh, we'll awesome. see how that works out. But coming back to your talk, one of the nice things is that uh, RailsConf does record everything. So there will be a recording of this, I think, actually very soon, possibly even in, in time that this episode will come out. Typically within a week. Yeah. So my hope is that I can just point people to that. And I want to dig into sort of tangential things, some of the things that caught my mind, because I think it's a fantastic talk, and I highly recommend that everyone check it out when it comes out. Um, but I think there are a lot of subtle things that uh, sort of deeper questions that I want to ask. Um, but to give the context, the talk was called a 30-month migration. Is that the, right? The 30-month migration. And can you give just the, the rough overview of uh, what you were describing in the talk? Uh, well, I started at my current job at, at a company called First.io about three years ago, and Pretty quickly, uh, it's not like they needed me to tell them this, but pretty quickly it became apparent that our, our data model was not a good fit for, the, for what the business had become. And the problem turned out to be in the core most important relationship between entities in our data model. And um, we ended up in four stages spread over a two and a half year period, refactoring our data model to solve that problem. And uh, I thought it was kind of an interesting journey and it would be fun to share it at RailsConf. Yes, I will uh, definitely agree. I think I also found it to be a very interesting journey when I got to hear about it today. One of the themes that you highlighted a few times throughout the talk was the approach that you and your organization took to exposing and communicating the nature of the work as it was going on, because often these sort of big foundational refactorings, re-architectures, re-platformings, whatever you want to call them, they end up being uh, sort of hidden work. And mm -hmm. so there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes, but it's not as visible. Uh, so I'm interested if you could describe a little bit more of the approach that you took there and why you think that was as important as it was. Well, yeah, you know, architectural work in general, and especially database, data model refactorings, they slow down feature development, and they're invisible to stakeholders on the app. You know, sometimes they're visible in some ways. The very first change we made addressed some really terrible performance problems. And so once we were done with it, there was a visible outcome that made everybody happy. But during the two and a half months that we were working on this, I was full time on it and so not able to do any development on feature work. And I had also requested that we stop any feature development that would require changes to the database schema during that time or to a large part of the database I was schema. wondering if you had done that because these are the sort of things that often like, could everybody else just not for a minute? <laughs> yes. And that was fine. Or, or in theory, it was fine when we started it because, oh, well, we don't have anything like that coming up. Except then two weeks in, we did have something like that come up. And it was really big and, and everybody wanted it. And when can we have this done? Well, not until another eight weeks or so. And so our technical co-founder and at the time CTO is my friend Jess Martin. And um, he said, you need to find a way to radiate to the rest of the company that you're making progress. It doesn't have to be any details or anything. So without getting into too many technical details, 
I ended up writing a little program to gather metrics and spit those out into a CSV record that got tacked onto the end of a Google sheet. And we published a chart from that sheet in our project management system. And it was just a graph of how many specs there were that we'd written that needed to pass and how many specs were actually passing. And um, both lines went up, but after an initial spike where we were writing things out, the total number that needed to pass leveled off and the other one moved up toward it and, and people could see that we were making progress. It was nonlinear. It wasn't a perfect predictor or anything, but it helped to allay some of those fears of, oh, you know, the, they're just off polishing diamonds or, mm -hmm. or whatever. And then uh, more recently, we did a similar thing where we were removing a central join table that we didn't no longer needed. And I just wrote a little script to count references to either the table name or the model name in our code base and in a very similar fashion spit that out as a csv record that got dumped in a google spreadsheet and with a chart that we posted into our project management system counting down from starting out at a little over 200 references to that in our code base and going down gradually to zero I think that sort of communication is, is so critical, but often missed. You'll be focused and you'll even like, often this sort of work can be frustrating, can have dead ends, can have false starts. Mm -hmm. And the last thing you want to do is then put up some metric or conversely metrics can affect the work that you're doing in the terms of what gets measured, gets managed, all of those sort of adages. And even like the concept of a burn down chart is something that I'm often resistant to because mm -hmm. I think it puts those sort of constraints. And yet, all of that aside, I still feel like this is so critical in this type of work because for so long it might be completely hidden. Yeah, you know, engineers tend not to think of the people side of deeply technical work like this. Mm. We all know there's people side to our work, but then it's like, okay, how can we refactor this thing in our database? Well, there's a people side to that too. And um, the crucial thing was Jess's insight that I just keep it super simple, one little metric that reflected actual progress, and uh, it was a big help. Indeed. One of the other themes that stuck out to me was a lot of conversations about databases. Initially, there were two databases, and that was a source of pain. Uh, distributed data model was something that um, caused you a bunch of pain, and was really interesting for me to, to hear you talking about that. And then similarly, all of the features of Postgres that you eventually leveraged as you were pushing those in. And it sounds like for you, it was also sort of an exploration of the database space. Uh, is that something that you like enjoyed as you were working through that and going deeper into that world? It certainly was. Most of my career, uh, since I became a Rails developer, certainly, I've worked with MySQL. I've always wanted to have the opportunity to work with Postgres. There are a few things it has that make it a little more mature and uh, feature-rich and give you a better safety net, I think. So, yes, it was an opportunity to explore that and find out what Postgres could do for us in terms of both protecting the integrity of our data, allowing us to make changes safely, and then using some fancy more recent features, be able to do some changes in single queries that might have taken a lot more work and a lot more time without those features. You spoke in particular about using triggers at one point to mm -hmm. update data and to keep it in sync, essentially. Which, of course, is a very old database oh, technology, but yeah. Absolutely. But the way you were describing it was interesting because it very much mirrors my experience of 
I spent a lot of my career not actually working that much in the database, spending a lot more time in Ruby and Rails. And over time, it, it kept being a recurring theme in my own work where if I noticed that I was grabbing a bunch of data and then iterating in Ruby and filtering it down and sub-selecting, it's like, nope, we're going to stop here. I need to back up and try that. And then probably the most recent one for me is exploring views a bit more, which for some reason, I had the idea in my head that that was a bad thing to do. Not even in a concrete way, but it was just like, oh no, I, that's, that's logic. I need to have that in my app. But the database over time has become my most trusted friend, my, the place that I want to model as much of the consistency and guarantees and truth of my application, enums, things like that. I'm not actually sure where Rails I'm stands with enums. I'm jealous now because I thought the database was my friend. <laughs> the <laughs> database can have many to many friends. It's, yeah, uh, <laughs> okay, gotcha. So there are all of these wonderful features of the database that you talk about, uh, CTEs, mm -hmm. uh, which that's window functions and things of that nature. Are those the same sort of thing? Or no, I, uh, CTEs are you know common table expressions. It's a way of lifting what traditionally you would have done as a subquery, mm -hmm. lifting it out into a separate query expression that can then be used by name in your main query. It is really a way of factoring out different subqueries into their own named entity outside uh, so that they don't complicate the body of your main query. Gotcha. Database is great, and Postgres is a, a just wonderful piece of technology. And I am very, very far from being a database expert, so I wouldn't <laughs> be surprised if some of what I said was laughably wrong in some respect, but that's the way I've learned to think of common table expressions and that how I use them. sounds right, and I'm certainly not the person to correct you on that. The theme for me has been that each step a little bit deeper into the world of the database and into embracing and learning more about Postgres has been so valuable. And it's interesting to me that for some reason earlier on in my career, I had a resistance to that. Mm -hmm, I don't know if too. that was self-imposed or if that was something in the community, but it's I think it's a wonderful theme that people are leaning into Postgres more and more. And actually, one of the other things that you talked about was one of the reasons that you had two databases early on is that you had determined that your business was a social graph. Mm -hmm. And so you used a graph database to model the social graph. And then eventually you determined it wasn't, although it did seem like the, the eventual relationship was sort of more of a tree than a graph. But even at that, I think Postgres yeah. can do a wonderful job with graphs. Oh, sure it can, yeah. And I want, like, I'm trying to think of the application that I would use a graph database for, that I would reach for that. Well, uh, I mentioned in my talk my colleague Swanand Pagnus. Mm -hmm. Shortly after this experience, he gave a talk at a conference there in India where he talked about exactly that question. And I don't remember the exact details of his answer of when you would, would want to use uh, Neo4j, but um, if you're listening and are interested in that, Google that. I think there's a video online somewhere, and uh, you'll get his answer to that question. We will uh, chase down a link to that and make sure we can point folks at it. But I, I do love the just simple idea of just always start with Postgres. Well, just yeah. stay there that, for as long as we exactly can. That's exactly right. And then some of these complexities, that distributed data models are something that I more and more will resist with every fiber of my being. Every day that I can prevent us distributing the data model is a good day in my mind. I agree. Um, but one of the things that you talked about uh, that you actually keyed in on a few times was that polymorphic relationships just continued to give you trouble. And I've definitely felt the same thing, especially with what we were saying about, I trust Postgres. Postgres can keep <laughs> me honest, can have foreign keys and things like that, unless we have polymorphic relationships, which often come up. And I'm, I still don't know what to do with that, but I feel that same pain. I don't either. You know, I long ago stopped expecting to be able to find perfect solutions for problems. <laughs> and... Uh, 
you know, we have a couple of polymorphic tables in our database and we don't anticipate getting rid of them anytime soon. They're useful. They're a good way to model that data. The database can't help us with the integrity of those things. And, you know, we probably could if we built triggers and things like that, but we just rely on validations and uh, make sure that our Rails app is the only thing that uh, touches that database. And it really only causes us problems when we're in the middle of trying to change the data model around and things like that. But in everyday use, they're fine and they're useful. I try to think hard about whether we really need another polymorphic table, but if that's the right way to model the situation, I'm not going to say no to it. Yeah, I think there's a, a wonderful pragmatism to that answer. Uh, but it is one of those things that I can t- like each time I feel a little bit of pain around that, I, I keep coming back to like, I'll just Google, did we figure out anything else yet? Hey, worlds, do we have a different... Nope, still? Okay, that's what we're going to do. Actually, that that brings me to uh, another point where you... Throughout this, you were talking about the idea of these kind of continued refactorings over time. And it sounds like your organization has a great culture of refactoring and of making time for getting the data model correct, which, uh, if we're being honest, is almost always going to be a moving target. And so these sort of things become necessary. But you used a phrase, and I'm interested in how real of a thing this was, the inventory of pain. I'm guessing it was more (laughs) colloquial, but... It's colloquial. But we talk about it in the engineering team. It's not like it's written down in a prioritized list in Trello or anything. But we we talk about what's causing us pain and what's annoying in their code base. And not to the extent of complaining and gripe sessions, but this is something we should fix someday. And um, we try to keep that top of mind and roll up our sleeves and tackle it when we have a chance to. It's interesting the way you responded almost uh, with a humorous, like, oh, we don't have it in Trello in a prioritized <laughs> list. But honestly, I think that would potentially be a very reasonable yeah. thing. And like, I think Trello has a voting feature even now, so you could distribute that out throughout the team. And maybe that's too much process, but probably that's too much process. But like, I use a similar thing for my own dot files and my own like personal configuration. And I found it helps me focus. The fact that I have somewhere to put mm-hmm. that gripe and to like put a tally mark each time, like that table bit me again. The naming is wrong on this, and for another time, mm-hmm. I went searching, and I looked for the wrong thing, and I found the wrong thing. Like, two more times, and I'm coming after you, yeah. but not today. And being able to actually defer the work is sort of a corollary to this that I think is interesting. Knowing as an organization that you will have that time, and then having a way to collaboratively have that discussion is an interesting theme. Yeah. You mentioned renaming. Uh, the thing where the name is wrong and the name keeps biting you. This is one lesson I've learned about that that I've started to apply in our code base. When you have a name mismatch between the front-end product and back-end data model, it's really tempting to start going in and defining method aliases and gradually renaming that throughout your system. And I've found that that makes things worse. Because you, you end up with two different names for things in the same layer of your system. Right, you live in both worlds uh, for right. a period of time. Right, live in both worlds. So I've started strongly pushing that the mapping layer for that is the GraphQL mm. API implementation in our Rails app. And this keeps both the front end and the back end clean using the names that are they're kind of pervasive and in place in those systems. But also... It gives you a focus for where all that mapping logic is going to be. And when it starts becoming unwieldy, it'll be very clear because it'll start to overwhelm that one little layer that's doing all the mapping. And that's when you need to say, okay, this is when we go fix this all the way down so that uh, we simplify the whole system. 
Mm, interesting. I didn't actually know that GraphQL was uh, was a technology in here, but it, yeah, that's the, that's our API between the back end and the front end. The same thing would apply if you had a, a REST API layer. I definitely agree. Although one of the things, so I'm I'm a big advocate of GraphQL, and the more I work with it, the more I enjoy it. And part of the reason is because I found that the conversations that I have when building a REST API are very small in scope. There, oh, can you uh, can you serialize this data and send me down what I need for this thing? Versus in a GraphQL API, we end up having conversations like, what is true about our domain, about mm -hmm. our platform, about yes. the data of our business, and let's encode that within this API, and then decouple the front end and the back end and allow them to evolve independently. But it's it's this very subtle thing, but over and over as I have these conversations with folks, and like, I have this weird GraphQL question. And when they ask me the question, I'm like, that's not a weird GraphQL question. That's a weird product question. Yes. And I love talking about weird product questions. I don't really want to spend that much time on JSON serialization. Mm -hmm. And I love the way that that conversation has moved. That's interesting. I'm glad that you brought up GraphQL, though, because I bring it up way too much on this podcast, <laughs> I think. So I'm so glad that that came from you in this case. So I've really enjoyed exploring some of the process and the sequence and, and some of the questions. But one thing that that stood out about your stories, it seemed relatively straightforward. And obviously this is in retrospect, and obviously you're telling the, the cleaned up, the more digestible version. But I'm wondering, were there any false starts? Were there any points where you tried something and it just didn't work, or something was just, it refused to be refactored for a period of time? Um, no, not hmm. so far, not with this. You know, like I said in the talk that there were at least three spikes where we did rough work to explore potential solutions. And some of those spikes yielded decisions like, okay, well, let's not do it that way because that clearly doesn't work. So maybe you can call that a false start. But it was very much like, okay, let's take a quick look at this problem mm -hmm. to see the boundaries and the general shape of it. And then we'll be better prepared to really dive in and, and tackle it. And uh, I think partly as a result of that way of working, most things turned out to be pretty straightforward when we really got to work on them. I mean, you say pretty straightforward, but... Complex. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was a very interesting sequence. And it was uh, one of the things you highlighted was just how distinct each of the four major sections were. Some of it was Ruby. Some of it was database. That was the was... big surprise. Yeah. And that was really the thing that made me want to do this talk is... We've done these four stages that are really, they, they can be seen as, and certainly in retrospect, it's clear that they're part of the same big refactoring. And the techniques that were required at each stage were wildly different, had almost nothing in common with each other. And that was a real surprise to me. You never know until you get in there and you actually pop open the hood and, and you start seeing, how are we going to approach this? What are we going to do? I always think of software as uh, an act of discovery as much as it is an Very act of creation so. or, or of engineering, which brings us to another topic, <laughs> <laughs> which, again, I really enjoyed the talk today. But you have another talk that you've given numerous times, I think approaching 20. Is that correct? Uh, probably. Like I'm still a little surprised when people <laughs> continue to want to see that, that talk, mm -hmm. but they do. And... I'm proud of that work, and so that makes me very happy. And so the talk that we're referring to here is Real Software Engineering. Is that, That's did right. I get the title correct? And there's a particular version that we can link folks to in the show notes. Uh, but can you give the very quick overview, or as quick as you think is the useful overview, of what the, what the talk is roughly about? The quick overview is that, and the, the quick overview paints a story that's that's kind of hard to swallow, mm. which is why the the whole talk is an hour long to to really back this up. But the quick overview is that most of what we call software engineering through the history of the field, starting in the late '60s and proceeding through its heyday in the early '90s, 
and even into the 2000s in some respects, most of what was called software engineering was really based on a completely mistaken idea of both software development and what it's like and engineering and what it's like. So it's little wonder that it didn't work. And I think the word engineering, I mean, I'm not seeking prestige. I don't think it's about that. I think the word engineering and the word engineer bring with them a responsibility that our field would be good to take on and take seriously. And the failure of the first 30 or 40 years of software engineering leads people to say, well, software development isn't engineering. It's incompatible with that idea. And I think that would be a disaster if we just threw up our hands and said, well, I guess we're not engineering. We'll have to be something else because it's worth learning how to become a better engineering discipline. And uh, just because a a completely wrongheaded way of approaching that failed doesn't mean there aren't better ways. Indeed. In the talk, you give, uh, I think, a wonderful historical background to both engineering, to software engineering, to software development, uh, and sort of how those terms have, have danced around each other. But to talk a little bit about what you describe as sort of the failed period of software engineering or the, the bits where we probably went off course. I'm guessing that is things in the waterfall and yeah. that sort of space, correct? Yeah. Very defined processes and formal mm-hmm. methods, graphical modeling languages, things like that. Things that were modeled on a mistaken stereotype of what real engineering mm-hmm. is like, right? Let's do things the way civil engineers do with diagrams and, and blueprints and documents and equations to validate the correctness of this design and and things like that, which, you know, to some degree, those statements really do describe certain large-scale engineering disciplines like civil and structural engineering, although even in those cases, probably not as much as most people expect. But there are also other branches of engineering that don't look like that at all, and they look much more like what we do every day, iteration and experimentation and prototyping and testing, and that's engineering. And just because you can't do a design on paper and hand it to a laborer to build perfectly doesn't mean it's not an engineering discipline. And can you imagine if we had to print out all our source code and then sign it or initial every page? That actually yes. happened. That probably happened historically. Huh. Oh, I bet it has. Time. So my background actually is as a mechanical engineer. So I went to school for that. I graduated, uh, worked as an engineer in the industry for three years. And I actually worked for a company that did destructive testing. Oh, yeah. So I even went to that end of the spectrum. And a lot of what you're saying rings very true to me. And there was actually... It was very interesting as I was transitioning to software development. The common theme for me was I liked making things. I liked mm-hmm. having the ability to make something. But the distinguishing factor was with mechanical engineering, I needed a support system. I needed process. It was mm-hmm. essentially impossible to do the work without purchasing and the machining team and manufacturing and shipping and logistics and all of that. And I was so strongly drawn to software because I didn't need those things. And so the lack of some of the more formal methods and formal documentation and things like that, I see as a success. But also, if mechanical engineering could be done that way, if we could just 3D prototype metal parts and be able to test them very quickly, that's how we would do it. Absolutely. Well, and with the improvement in like fluid dynamics modeling and Mm -hmm. simulation technology, the way engineering disciplines do their work is changing to be more iterative and experimental, trying things out in virtual prototypes in a simulation and modeling environment before 
going to the expense of building real prototypes and helping to refine their their design much more quickly and cheaply that way. There's a, a corollary or related concept here that I'm personally not really sure what to do with, which is the idea that mechanical engineering or, or a lot of the engineering fields, civil, structural, et cetera, they have a very clear gate of a degree. You have to have a four-year degree or more in order to practice in the field. And software does not have that. And personally, I think that's absolutely wonderful. I love that it is given access to this wonderful career path to so many people. But at the same time, I think there's a double-edged aspect to that where there's perhaps a little less of learning from the past. It's so easy to dive into this industry. And again, I think that's a wonderful thing, but it doesn't have zero costs. And so I don't know that you have any answers to this, but I'm just going to ask the question of what, what do we do? How do we learn from the past more effectively in the software world? First, I'll say I agree with you on all of those points. Hmm. I think it's good that we don't have that gatekeeping you know, structure in place in software today. I think we should consider ourselves engineers, but I'm not interested in, for the near future, for this foreseeable future, establishing a professional engineering requirement and, and that kind of regulatory structure around our field, although that might happen someday. Hmm. But By and large, I think that the fact that it's so easy to dive in this field is an enormous benefit, and we do end up with a pretty shallow view on average of the history of our field Mm -hmm. in software development, partly because of that. And, you know, I don't have any real answers for that, except that's one reason that most of the talks I give delve into the history some. Mm -hmm. Just try to put that out there. And I don't think I've ever met a young programmer who didn't have a computer science degree or software engineering degree who wasn't interested in that history. They just hadn't had a need to learn it. And so just keeping on talking about it and writing about it and pointing people to it and, and bringing it up when there are new situations that older parts of our history, old papers, long dead products, things like that can shed light on the situations we're in today. Like I said before, I've given up expecting perfect solutions to problems. <laughs> Which is, I think, the only way to keep doing this for any extended well, that's period true, of yeah. time, uh, or just life in general. But what are, are some of the processes? So waterfall and things like that have failed us. I think Agile is probably the thing that stands out most in my mind. But then TDD, which I don't think is a core part of Agile, but is was that extreme programming? Uh, it that, was, yeah. Okay. What else do you think of when you think of the practices and the, the way that we should be approaching this as an engineering discipline? Well, first of all, Agile is a big step in the right direction because it acknowledges the realities of software development and what we can know and what we can't know. And and what you were talking about earlier of the act of developing software is an act of discovery of what the software should be. You don't know in advance what it's going to look like. And you discover that by iteration, not just within the engineering team, but between the engineering team and the stakeholders and the the product owner and the users. You gradually discover what the product should be. And the Agile methodologies acknowledge that. And they were scorned as being anti-engineering. But in my view, they were much more clearly aligned with the way engineering works and should work in this kind of field. 
In my understanding of engineering, a, a core, core aspect is just in establishing and defining the constraints and then picking within those. And, That's right. And the Agile Manifesto is defined entirely in terms of trade-offs. Mm-hmm. Like, while there's value in the things on the right, we prioritize the things on the left, and that like aligns with, I've given up on finding perfect answers, but I'm happy to find better answers. Yeah, my favorite kind of overall definition of engineering is from a mechanical engineering professor named Billy Vaughn Cohen. He said, engineering is the use of heuristics to find the best change in a a partially unknown situation within the available resources. And it it emphasizes all of those Mm trade-offs and the guesswork involved. It's just not a methodical, straightforward process, as some people imagine it will be. But, you know, Agile isn't the be-all and end-all either, I think anything that gets us closer to being able to deal responsibly with particular kinds of problems qualifies as a real advance. I'm really excited about Rust. I find it kind of frustrating to program in because I haven't done all that much of it. But for a long time, we've had this divide in programming languages between systems that were good for doing systems work Mm -hmm. and languages that are good for doing application work. And the ones that are good for doing systems work are fast, but also easy to program security bugs and Mm -hmm. concurrency bugs, and more importantly, very hard to build high-level abstractions in. And the languages that are good for applications work are safe and easier to build high-level, really good high-level abstractions in, but they're slow and they tend to be garbage collected, and that has some characteristics that aren't good for everything. And Rust has found a new way of dealing with some of those problems that gives us a safe, in the technical sense of the word, low-level systems language that also, by virtue of having a different model of memory management, allows you to build effective high-level abstractions. And that's really exciting to me. Another thing is that formal program specification and proof of the kinds of things that they they were trying to do in the early days of software engineering, but became way too costly and and it was just as error prone writing the specification of, of a program as it was writing the program. But formal specifications and formal methods are starting to become practical for certain kinds of systems, including, you know, proving the correctness of small kernels and things like that. You can look for talks by uh, a woman named Kathleen Fisher, who talks about this in great detail, using satisfiability solvers to validate that a low-level C program has no security holes and memory leaks and completely conforms to its specification. And this gives rise to the possibility that we might be able to use something like that to have really sound low-level platforms that we then program on in safe languages like Rust or higher-level, you know, more traditional safe languages like Ruby and have systems that are much more sound top to bottom. That sounds like engineering to me. Mm. Does sound like engineering? It does also sound somewhat novel or recent. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I'm trying to think of that. that I'm excited about everything. It you is. Just it's said really and... only in the past five to ten years that people have had real success proving the correctness of real world systems, and they're still very small. Mm-hmm. But that's what leads to this, you know, platform application divide where you put the formal 
methods work into the lowest level platform and uh, then build on top of that in languages that are safe. Another thing that seems similar in spirit, and I've really just read a little blurb about it and I haven't had time to dig in with, with the details, but Amazon, as a part of AWS, has written a, a new little operating system that's specialized for some purpose they have called Firecracker, and it's written in Rust. And so you have the operating system that underlies parts of AWS written in a language that can't leak memory or have buffer overflows or anything like that. And so it's built for security. And I can see why Amazon did that, because it seems like they're starting to think about rebuilding the foundation of AWS to be secure right down to the middle. Hmm. That's very interesting. And actually, it, I think it was two or three episodes back, I had some folks from Mozilla on, Lynn Clark and Till Schneiderite, uh, who are working on WebAssembly and the WebAssembly system interface, which are, I believe, a very similar, particularly the WebAssembly system interface is a very similar thing, where it's a new foundational layer. It's a new safe way to interact with the hardware of the machine, right. but with some of those guarantees and with security baked in as a, a first principle. And interestingly, one of the, the use cases is fast on their CDN network, allowing code to run on top of that at the edge nodes. Oh, wow. So you can distribute it across Fastly's, however many, 25, 50, I don't know how many edge mm -hmm. nodes, but some number and growing and very close to yeah. your users, you can now have safe, secure computation with microsecond, picosecond, I don't know, some tiny, tiny, a thing that I've never seen Provided in a Ruby program. Provided by Fastly's customers. Yes, so I think these are Lambda type, yeah, um, that nice. sort of code running out at the distributed edge nodes of the system. But again, built on like we need to sort of start fresh and think about it. And so it's, I've actually spent very little, if no time with Rust, but I keep hearing very interesting things like I've spent this. spent a weekend with it, so I'm okay. no expert. Oh, so. <laughs> Another thing that's kind of a new manifestation of engineering principles in software is chaos engineering. I think that fits the engineering methodology just perfectly. You have to deploy your systems in environments where things can go wrong, and you're building distributed systems where parts of it might break, either from bugs in the system or hostile actors on the, the cl same cloud you are or uh, any number of other things or, you know, a machine melted or whatever. And the only way to build systems that work reliably in the face of that is to throw failure at them all the time. And that's one of those ideas that probably sounded loony to a bunch of people until somebody actually did it and started to have good results with it. And now it's starting to seem like, well, obviously, that's the only way to do that. And really, it is the only way to do that. And a few people like Joe Armstrong knew all that all along. But it took the people at Netflix to build Chaos Monkey and start really exploring manufacturing failures to both advance and demonstrate the reliability of their systems. Mm -hmm. And with Joe Armstrong, you're referring to the creator of Erlang, yes, right. uh, who recently passed away, which is very sad, mm -hmm. a loss to the programming community. But like you said, someone who's been thinking about these things for a while. and it. It does sort of come back to the question of there are people doing this work and like Lisp has been around for oh how long and had some really interesting mm -hmm. things in there that we're only now rediscovering and bringing right. to the forefront. And systems that, you know, ran in production for years and years with no downtime mm -hmm. while being upgraded. Mm. You know, <laughs> that's a dream. Well, yeah, that's a dream, except they were doing it in common Lisp and Erlang in the 90s. Mm -hmm. yeah.
But yeah, it's also interesting, the, the chaos engineering uh, had Avdi Grimm on a number of episodes back. And that's sort of his direction of thinking now, an area that he's been exploring. And mm -hmm. I agree with the idea that if you have a distributed system, this is the only way to, you've, you've got to test it, you've got to push it and right. make sure. But I wonder if you don't have a distributed system, like say we're able to stick in our monolith land for as long as we can, cling, cling to the monolith. Is there a similar version of Chaos Monkey, but within that sort of constrained system? I think probably yes, but I don't know what that looks like. I know of Chaos Monkey for the distributed use case, but I don't know of, assuming I've been able to fight the tide of service-oriented architecture for another day, what should I be doing with my monolith? Well, there are two things related to that that I would point you to. One is property-based testing, mm. which... I mean, it's a different kind of chaos, but it's throwing random data at your system. It's a, a more disciplined version, I would say, of fuzz testing, mm -hmm. throwing random data at your system to force it to break and, and help you find the weird edge cases. And I've used that, and it found really weird edge cases that I'd never thought of, but that totally would have happened in the wild. Mm -hmm. And another thing that I would point you to is the Erlang actor and supervisor model. One of Joe Armstrong's insights was if you really need reliability, you need at least two computers. But that doesn't have to be a distributed system in the sense that we think of it as the different parts doing different things. It can just be for failover. And Erlang was designed so that within a single executable, it follows that model with lots of individual little processes and supervisors that manage them and restart them if they crash. And uh, I would be shocked if the Erlang community had not at some point developed something chaos monkey-ish mm. that injected into a, a monolith, at least from deployment terms mm -hmm. and source code base terms, it's a monolith to randomly kill Erlang processes and make sure that uh, the whole system hangs together in that event. Being that it's such a core idea of the Erlang right. community, the let it crash and the supervisor mm -hmm. model and all of that, I would be similarly surprised if no one had ever pushed that one a little bit further as a weird weekend project. Yep. Talking about property testing, is that something that you've done in Ruby and Rails applications? I have not. Okay. That's a similar thing for me. I've seen it in other communities and in other languages, and conceptually, I'm very intrigued by it. But I don't know if there's even much work in that space in the Ruby community. There's not. You know, it, it lends itself well to a purely functional environment mm -hmm. because it's hard to build property-based tests that deal with side effects. But mm -hmm. um, I've used it to tremendous effect in Clojure and Clojure Script. And like I said, it was easy to build the property-based tests, and they found things I never would have found with traditional unit or integration testing, but that absolutely would have happened in the wild. That, that definitely makes sense. Although I, I can imagine, and my programming has sort of taken an arc where I've been exploring more functional approaches to programming, and my Ruby has changed as a result, oh, where yeah. Gary Bernhardt's functional core imperative shell is something mm -hmm. that uh, I remember when I first watched it, I was like, huh. I don't get it. And then <laughs> came back to it a year later or two years later. I was like, oh, okay, I start to get it. And then a little bit later, I was like, oh, I think I get it now. I think that that's starting to make sense. And so I wonder if those, those core pieces, the functional bits in the core, assuming you're working in a mode like that, is there a way that we can you know, start to bring us, I imagine there's a library. Someone must have done this uh, at some yeah, point. I would, but say, I would imagine so. What you're saying is, in my mind, a little bit of a pitch for functional programming. And I don't think Most things these days tend to be. Yeah. <laughs> There are directions. And static typing is another interesting one, which Ruby has its own interesting approaches. Um, mm -hmm. I'm very interested to see how that plays out and how, again, just sort of 
if we're trying to take a step back and think about how we do the work and how we model the systems and how we do our best to guarantee correctness, these are some of the things that have been catching my attention. And it's interesting to see how they then layer into Ruby. Because I don't think Ruby is incompatible, but it's not necessarily at first blush obvious how, right. how that's going to happen. Yeah. You know, static typing has value. And in some situations, it has, has very strong value. It also has costs. Mm -hmm. But... I can think of places, even in Ruby systems, where I would want to have that value and pay that cost. Mm -hmm. Probably not everywhere in the system, but definitely places. So I haven't had a chance to look at the um, recent optional static typing stuff that came out of Ruby Kaigi a couple of weeks ago, but uh, I'm looking forward to learning about that and seeing what I think of it. And I'm encouraged that it's something that came out of real use from a real team, mm -hmm. not just something that somebody dreamed up and thought, well, this would be good, but they actually use it and are solving real problems and are happy with it. The real problem, is that Stripe? That's Stripe. Is, okay, so it's Stripe's Sorbet library. Sorbet, is that yes. actually in, okay, I didn't realize that there was a convergence there. That's good to hear. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. Uh, Matt said at Ruby Kaigi that in Ruby 3, Sorbet or, or some mm -hmm. variant of it would be included. Interesting. I did hear that it's going to be like separate files for the type definitions and then the implementation. I don't even know that much. I heard that and I was like, header files? We're going back to header files? But <laughs> we'll see. Uh, my knowledge consists of about four tweets. Mm. So. <laughs> that's a lot these days. That's most. As long as you say that up front, I think it's yeah, fine. Okay. I think that's such an important skill in modern day conversation. Like, I'm going to be honest, this is an article's worth of knowledge. This is four tweets. That's right. Yep. We're working on one tweet here. That's all we've got. But... Well, Glenn, I think with that, we have probably covered uh, plenty. I appreciate so much you taking the time and agreeing to chat with us. It was my pleasure. And where can folks find more of your work on the internet? I am GLV on Twitter. Which I am extremely jealous of the three-letter Twitter handle that you have. Uh, I was pretty early. Uh, I'm easy to find, and you know everything I do gets linked there eventually. Indeed, and you have a blog, which I have, you a, get I have to a blog at vanderberg.org, yeah. and lots, lots, which of is writing. harder to spell than GLB. So, <laughs> and lots of writing there, and lots of talks. And again, we'll link to your preferred version of the uh, Real Software Engineering. And depending on the timing, we will certainly link to your RailsConf talk. And again, thank you so much. Thank you. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. And if you have any feedback for this or any of the other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed, or you can reach me at Chris Toomey on Twitter, or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh, come discover a better way to work.